Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew in the, the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 21, uh, beginning in verses uh, 1 through 11. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 1,531. Many of you uh, are familiar with uh, the story of The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, set in the time of King Edward VIII and his son, Prince of Wales, Edward VI. One winter day, Edward meets Tom Canty, a poor boy his same age, clothed in worn, tattered clothes as a guard is pulling Tom away from the fence outside of, of the castle. Struck by, by how much Tom looks like him, the prince orders the guard to bring Tom in the castle. When they meet face to face, they're both struck at just how much they look alike, even more so when they decide to trade clothes. As they talk, they also discover that they envy the perceived freedom of the other person's life. So they make a plan, switch clothes and switch places. Everything seems great until Edward acts like a prince while looking like a pauper and is thrown out of the castle. It's not long after this that in the story King Henry would die, making Edward the rightful king, but but there's a problem. Despite being the true rightful king, now that Edward is dressed in rags, he, he doesn't fit the people's image of a king. And so his own people treat him as a fraud best, they'd laugh at him. At worst, they would beat him, all because he didn't meet their expectations of a king. Meanwhile, in the castle, all the royal expectations and authority had been placed on another, on on Tom, on one who had no right to assume that role. You see, The Prince and the Pauper is a story about many things, but among them is our struggle to rightly embrace someone who doesn't meet our expectations and our willingness to give someone or something more influence over us than they're actually due. Matthew's Gospel shows us a similar problem. At the center of it, in fact, the center of the story of the whole Bible is, is a king. The Messiah, the, the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel, the one that God's people have been longing to see for generations. But, but what if the king didn't look the way that we expected? If the true king had come to us today, would, would we know him? If we saw him, how would we respond if we encountered an unexpected king? Would, would we miss the true king or would we embrace a false king? Well, this morning we're going to look at two passages in Matthew's gospel that show us how different people saw and responded to Jesus of Nazareth, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the, the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel. And we see it starting here in Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As we look in the pages of of Matthew's gospel, we actually see three different kinds of kings and with them three different responses. What we see here in chapter 21 is what we might call the expected king. See, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, he, he got quite the welcome. He got a royal welcome, a welcome that was rooted both in the people's past as, as well as their present. You see, centuries before that time, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites asked the, the prophet Samuel to, to give them their first king, a king of their own choosing, a king who could lead them like all the other nations, to go out before them and to fight their battles. The expectation was this, that their kings would fight on behalf of of their people so that the wicked would no longer oppress them. Their kings would rule over them for centuries, but, but, but not forever. Eventually bigger, stronger nations like Babylon and Assyria would would conquer them and depose their kings and take their people away into exile. But in the midst of that, there was a promise the promise of an everlasting king who would one day rise from among them called the Messiah or the Christ. By the time of Jesus, their expectations of what that king would be like were summed up in the types of songs that they would sing, songs of messianic expectations, songs with lyrics like this. He shall thrust out sinners. He shall destroy the godless nations that he may shatter unrighteous rulers and that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. But by the time of Jesus, after years in exile, they were finally living back in their homeland, but they realized they were not yet free because they were living under Roman occupation, taxed heavily to fund the Roman Empire, the soldiers that were oppressing them, and the pagan religion that they followed. And meanwhile, their their would-be freedom fighters, those that they had trusted in to deliver them, were being publicly executed in the most degrading, excruciating way all to send a message, don't mess with Rome. So for many in Jesus' day, the expectation was of a king that would come to conquer, a conquering king, conquering the Romans, which actually fits really well with the type of welcome Jesus receives here in chapter 21. And in verse 8, we see the people laying down branches from the nearby palm trees. Creating a path of palms was was actually a common way um, to welcome a returning king or a war hero. See, for them, palm branches were a sign of of victory, but also of Jewish nationalism, seen from uh, their temple walls uh, to their coins. You see, for them, holding and waving and laying out palm branches was like someone today waving the flag of their nation's army as it rolls into town. Together with them laying down not only the branches, but also their cloaks was like rolling out a royal red carpet, a sign of honor, but also a sign of submission because of what they expected their king to do on their behalf. Verse 9, we read the words of their welcome. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Friends, these are loaded terms for them. Son of David was a messianic title. It was a, a royal designation as he enters the royal city of Jerusalem. Hosanna meant, O oh, save, or, or simply, God, save us. 
So they were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, and they were looking for him to deliver them. The expected king, someone who conquers the enemy, someone who gives us a reason to wave our own flag of glory. Today, many of us adopt the same view of Jesus. You see, someone who's going to crack down on all the wickedness around us, the corrupt, the wicked, those who abuse their power, the liars, the cheaters, people who merge on you without using their turn signals. Yeah, 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 them too. In the midst of it, we can see our role kind of like that of the crowd, to wave our flag proudly because our king is against the same things that we're against, and he will conquer. But with that comes a temptation or two. You see, when we see that Jesus is indeed against something that we're against, that that his enemy is also our enemy, it can be easy to assume that he's always going to be against what we're against, whatever that thing or individual or even group might be. The way we can tell that we've slipped into this tempting mindset is probably summed up in the words of the author uh, Anne Lamott, who said, You can safely assume you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. As a result, we just might not hear Jesus when he says something unexpected, when he affirms someone or something we don't anticipate, or when he challenges something we don't think he should. Maybe we become so fixated on on what Jesus is against that we forget what he might actually be for. And that fixation can show up in what we think it means to be his followers. Um, A pastor in South Carolina named Tyler Edwards noticed this in his own congregation, maybe even in his own denomination, when he wrote this. In building our platform on what we are against, we have often neglected to establish a foundation of of what we're actually for. And yet, in the place of what Jesus is for, we can easily be tempted to insert what we're for. Our own, our own agenda, seeking Jesus to try to further that agenda rather than following him to discover what his agenda just might be. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus gives this basic invitation of, of, of follow me. Let my agenda become your agenda. Learn from me. Let me teach you in this. But the Gospels show us that often people decided to follow Jesus and later decided to stop following him as they encountered what they often called his, his hard teachings— as he did things that surprised them. And in a matter of of a few years, uh, a following which once numbered in the thousands dwindled to a fraction of that by the time we get to these latter chapters of Matthew. You see, Jesus will either be our king, inviting us to make his agenda our agenda, or he'll be our tool that we use to further our own agendas. Um, Catholic priest who died a few years ago named Andrew Greeley used to have a a weekly column in the Chicago Sun-Times, and one of those columns he wrote this, if Jesus makes you comfortable with your agenda, then he's not Jesus. You see, while Jesus came and and while while he received their welcome, He didn't deny their welcome. He confirmed that indeed, yes, yes, I am the long-awaited king. This welcome is appropriate within a few weeks. He'd show them something quite unexpected for the type of king that they anticipate. And that's why when we, that's actually what we see if you just want to skip ahead a few pages in your Bible, if it's still open to Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26, our second reading on your pew Bibles, it's page 1,547, because here Matthew's going to paint us a picture of not the expected king, but, but the rejected 
king. To put it into context, throughout the Gospels, much of Jesus' teaching, to many surprise, was not about what's wrong with the Romans, not what's wrong with their leaders, but actually about God's own people. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our leaders? What's wrong with the things going on in Israel? And that didn't sit too well with the elders of their community or their chief priests. So by the time we get here to Matthew chapter 27, Jesus has already told them, yes, I am the Christ. I am the long-awaited king of Israel, but I am also the son of God. I am also the divine son of man, the one who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus has already told them, yes, that's what kind of king I, I really am. And they knew that that meant to be at odds with him, meant they're actually at odds with God himself. And, and to them, that was unthinkable. For Jesus to be divine was, was unspeakable. It, it was something that was seen as blasphemy to them. It was something that convinced them that he needed to die. But when you're an occupied people under Rome, you don't have the right to execute someone yourself, but they, they knew who did. The governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, and the charge they would bring before Pontius Pilate was, was not blasphemy because Roman could care less about Jewish theological disputes. But, but treason, sedition, uh, trying to overthrow the Roman government, that, yeah, yeah, they took that pretty seriously. It was one of only two charges that you could be crucified for, so they presented Jesus to them as, as king of the Jews, as a rival king to Caesar, a real threat to Roman rule. That's where we pick up the story in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? who was called Christ, for they knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall then I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Pilate asked. They shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The rejected king. How Jesus actually became this is actually seen right there in Pilate's question in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you really a a king? 
And if so, uh, have your own people, the ones handing you over to me, have they really rejected you as their king? See, the chief priests thought that their long-awaited king would have to be someone that they they recognized. Not someone who'd challenge them in their ways, but somebody who'd only affirm them in their ways. As for Pilate, he expected a would-be king to be some sort of violent revolutionary. Not the type who says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. You see, just like Mark Twain's Edward VI in his tattered robes, Jesus didn't look the part of a king to either of them, at least not the kind of king that they, that they had in mind. See, despite that, Jesus replies to Pilate's question of kingship by simply saying, yeah, yeah, that's who I am. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the rightful king of Israel, but, but no, no, I'm not this violent, militant leader that they're making me out to be. Their rejection of Jesus is further seen in verse 12 when they start hurling at Jesus one accusation after another, all of them slander, all of them unfounded. But in verse 18, we see that Pilate actually sees through it all. He knows what's really going on. He realizes that it's out of envy that they're accusing him. It's out of envy that they've rejected him because they realize that if they don't get rid of Jesus, the one that the crowds from Galilee praised as the coming king, that, well, what would become of them? as Israel's leaders? What would happen to their influence? What would happen to their sense of control over others? Pilate looks like he's giving Jesus an out in verse 17 when he he invokes this annual tradition that they had, uh, offering to the crowd to release the prisoner of their choice, either Jesus or a committed, one who committed murder in an act of insurrection against the Romans, a guy named Barabbas. And yet in doing so, Pilate is also rejecting Jesus by treating him as if he were already guilty of a capital offense. And as to surprise, Jesus finds himself cried for to be executed while the crowd asks for Barabbas to be released. You see, in a span of just a few days, the expected king of Matthew 21 has given way to the rejected king of Matthew 27, and it's And it's at least in part because they actually know what's at stake for Jesus to be king. You see, a a king is someone who who rules. And they wouldn't have Jesus rule over them. This passage also shows us some reasons why we too might reject Jesus as king. You see, just like the chief priests, maybe we too understand what would be at stake for him to be king. If Jesus really is a king, not just over Israel, but, but over all peoples. It means that he actually has the right to rule over, over all of our lives. The crowd outside of Jerusalem, they believe that. They saw that, and so they honored Jesus by laying down at his feet their, their cloaks and their palm branches. And to do the same today, what might Jesus be asking us to lay down before him? Maybe it's our relationships. Maybe it's that grudge that we've been holding on to that Jesus is asking us to lay down calling us to offer forgiveness the way that we've been forgiven. Maybe it's in our love lives. Maybe it's in in marriage. How we treat our spouses after the honeymoon phase has, has passed and treating them well is a lot harder than it used to be when we choose to actually work on a difficult marriage rather than just looking at the easy way out. Maybe, maybe it's in our sexuality. Maybe it's yielding that part of our lives to Scripture to actually act like what it would mean to follow Jesus with that part of our life. Maybe it's not in our love lives. Maybe it's actually our work lives. How we approach Jesus with our jobs when no one else is watching except for Jesus. 
who's our real boss. Maybe it's when we're tempted to, to fudge our expense reports or our timesheets rather than being honest in our reporting. Maybe it's when the IRS asks you about this time of year how much you really made working that, that job. Maybe it's when rumors and gossip start swirling around the office and instead you choose to react the way that you would want someone else to react if those rumors and gossip were about you. Maybe it's our worry that Jesus is asking us to lay down when we're always running around frantically as if we're the king, as if we're on the throne, and it's all up to us to make everything the way it should. Maybe it's when we're tempted to hide the truth from those who actually have the right to know that truth, who actually would only use it for our good, but because we're afraid of how they might use it against us. Maybe Jesus is asking us to lay down our worry. Maybe he's asking us to lay down that secret life that we've been living in seclusion. Maybe he's asking us to lay down how we handle conflicts, how we handle our money. Maybe it's how we handle our car, how, how we drive. Maybe some of us, like Pilate, might just fear losing control. See, Pilate saw something. He understood something. He knew that if he gave into the crowd's demands, it's likely that, or if he did not give into their demands, that a riot could break out, which is really bad if you're a governor who wants to keep your job in, in the Roman Empire. He thought, maybe I could just be neutral on, on Jesus. I mean, he saw Jesus as, as a good person. He saw him as an innocent man, but he realized that to respond to him rightly as a king would probably cost him more than he was willing to lose. Maybe today we see an area of our lives where we still want to be, remain in control by whatever means possible and have found ways to simply justify what we're doing along the way. Maybe some of us like the crowd before Pilate. We just let peer pressure lead us to reject Jesus as our king. We, we just go with the flow, rejecting Jesus without even knowing we're doing it. See, instead of seeking what it would mean to live as if Jesus were king in one area of our life, we just let the momentum of those around us carry us along and end up relegating Jesus to less than what he is as a king. Maybe along the way, our rejection of king is really because we've got another somebody else or something else ruling our life, a rival king, something we're really trusting in for our deliverance. Keep in mind, there's a reason why the crowds chose a murderer like Barabbas. He was a man of action. He was a guy who it looked like was getting things done. That was probably more what they trusted in to be their solution. It's probably more what militants in Egypt trusted in to bring about their ends earlier today. Maybe like the religious leaders who trusted in their own self-righteousness rather than Jesus teaching on that. Maybe realize there would actually be a cost to embracing Jesus as king. It would mean letting him reveal our own self-righteousness, letting him reveal our own misplaced trust, letting him point out the things that we're really letting rule us. And if we don't see that we need Jesus to reveal this in us, then we'll end up seeing Jesus as our enemy. You see, the perspective of of the expected king always sees the enemy as someone else out there, but the perspective of the rejected king actually sees Jesus as our enemy. And we can know that we've stumbled into that type of thinking when we begin to treat our enemy as our ally, the way the Jewish leaders did with Pilate, turning to them rather than Jesus to get what we most need. And there's a way of telling if It's happened in our own life. We know it's happened for us when our secret addictions suddenly become our functional saviors. Uh, When the things that destroy marriages become the first thing that we go to in the midst of a difficult marriage. Or when our attempts to remain in control of our world, if we're honest, only cause us to lose control of ourselves. You see, both the expected king 
It was against those other people. And, and the rejected king, the one that we won't let rule us, show that we've missed the nature of the one before us, the nature of, of the true king. See, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus accepts their recognition as, as king, as, as Messiah. But then he starts to redirect their hope when he comes in riding on a donkey. See, it's actually the way that they were told to expect their king to arrive. And in Zechariah chapter 9, uh, quoted in Matthew 21, it says, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. It's, it's an intentional contrast to the war chariot, the war horse of the battle bow that people probably expected. Instead, Jesus comes on slow, humble transportation that's not even his own. It, it's a borrowed donkey. You see, Jesus, though he's the one that has all the power and the authority to come in riding on the war horse, to their surprise, he's coming in on the donkey, meekly. And yet the people lay down their cloaks and their branches before him for a reason. It's because they believe that he could actually defeat their greatest enemy and set them free. And they were right in ways that they never even imagined. You see, for Israel, the hope of a king was always about somebody who could defeat their greatest enemies, somebody who could win a final victory over them, a victory that his people could actually share in with their king, someone who would lead, do something that would lead them to lay down more than just cloaks and branches because they see that he's actually more than worthy. We know what type of king they really were looking for in Second Samuel 7 where it paints the picture what God says the Messiah would be. And what he would do. That he would be an eternal king whose kingdom would have no end. One whom God would call his own son. And through him, God would make good on this promise who said, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. That means that asking Jesus to conquer the Romans was not asking him too much. It was actually asking too little. You see, eventually Rome would fall just like every other empire has fallen And the book of Revelation shows us that one day Jesus will deal finally with all forms of evil, with all forms of oppression in the world. But before Jesus could deal with the people's enemy out there, he actually first had to deal with a greater problem, what theologians often call the enemy within. Because nobody seeks liberation from an enemy they don't even see or recognize. That's why Jesus in his ministry often showed people why they needed a deeper form of liberation, why they needed a deeper form of salvation by pointing out our own sins and our own slavery to it, the very thing that the chief priests and the elders were rejecting him for. Think about it. What army, what weapon, what soldier can defeat the enemy within? Who will liberate us from envy? rooted in such insecurity that we can't stand seeing others receiving something that we want for ourselves. Maybe some of us in this room know what that's like. No freedom to rejoice with those who rejoice because we're so fixated on how our lives compare with that other person because comparisons rule our lives. Who will liberate us from a fear of losing control that just like Pilate leads us to do the unspeakable to others? Because the need for control rules our lives. Who will liberate us from a slavery to the things that we let rule us that are unworthy of that type of power? 
See, Jesus could simply overthrow the Romans as some expected or maybe just ignore the enemy within like somebody wanted. And yet his people would still never be free. But Jesus came first to conquer the greatest enemies that not only face them but face us, sin and the death that it leads to. That's why at his trial, he, he shows them something different. He shows them how he would do it. He would actually accomplish it by doing the exact opposite of what Pilate and what the crowd were doing. You see, in chapter 27, uh, Pilate passed the buck. He, he passes the blame of his actions to the people, saying, I'm washing my hands, this is on you. Then the people say, well, well, hey, actually, we'll take ownership for our own actions, and Jesus does something different from both. Rather than shifting the blame like Pilate, he takes the blame himself. And not for his own actions like the crowd does, but actually for the actions of his people. Innocent. Taking the place of the guilty. And that's the same thing that we need. Because if we're honest, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. I mean, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, You can raise your hand if you've ever done that for like five minutes in your life, and I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I know I haven't done it for five seconds Paul Tripp describes sin, our crimes against God, our desires and our actions, our thoughts, words, and deeds rooted in wanting to be my own God, my own Savior. He describes sin as as a moral coup, that we overthrow the Lord in our hearts and name ourselves as Lord. In other words, we're all spiritual insurrectionists. Before God, we're actually all worthy of the faith that Barabbas deserved. And to really understand that, it actually took the help of another pastor named Ray Cortez, who helped Help me see that in this passage, um, Barabbas probably couldn't hear the whole conversation going on outside. All he could hear was the shouts of the crowd, which means if you're Barabbas, one moment you hear somebody shouting your name, and the next moment you hear the same crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And you can only imagine the fear in his heart, knowing what he'd done, knowing what that deserves, the nervous sweat dripping from his brow as he heard the guards' approaching footsteps on the stone floor. A fear that gives way to joy, unspeakable, when the guard says, comes to him not to take him away to his death, but opens the door and says, you're free to go. Someone has taken your place. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. And when you see that, it will forever change how you see Jesus as a king. See, in Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, the story is finally brought to an end when Edward VI is able to establish himself as the rightful king by doing something that no one else could do, by producing the great seal of England. And friends, what we celebrate next week at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the final royal seal on Jesus and his kingship. It's the proof that he is the king that has come. It's his way of establishing his rightful place as our king, showing that he's conquered our greatest enemies, inviting us to share in that victory. You see, the resurrection is proof that sin and death have no authority over Jesus. And if he is our king, if he is the one fighting our greatest battles on our behalf, then sin and death have lost their authority on us as well. You see, there's another prince, the prince of peace, the true prince of peace, also became a pauper, being willing to be rejected, taking on flesh, 
taking our place on the cross, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that our sins deserved, showing us what he has done so that he might become our king. And if we want to know what it would look like for us to make Jesus our king, well, you can actually learn a lot from a three-year-old. I think we actually have a picture of, of one. Uh, we might. We might not. If not, that's okay. Imagine child, angry, kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Um, as a former three-year-old, no hate, by the way. Um, a <clears throat> friend of mine was telling me a story about their three-year-old back when they were three. They asked them to pick up a toy. Little three-year-old girl says, no. They asked them again, no, you need to pick up that toy, please. Little three-year-old takes another toy in their hand, throws it down on the floor, no. And then takes another toy, no, and another toy, no. And it's like raining Legos and no's just everywhere all over. No, like the word no, not actual noses. You know what I mean. Every single form of discipline in the midst of this tantrum as this little king or queen of her own castle, because when we're three, we all think that's really our role. We kind of forget that, no, it really is the big people that brought us in the world. Every single act of their tantrum was met by some different form of of discipline or response from the parrot that just didn't work. Failed attempt after failed attempt until finally this little ball of angry rage with tense shoulders and angry curled lip finds the loving hands of their parents, putting their hands around their shoulder, kneeling down to look them straight in the eye and say, Honey, why don't you just admit you're wrong so I can forgive you? And suddenly the shoulders go soft. Tears of repentance start streaming from her little face. Tears of repentance, followed by the embrace of her mother. You see, the controversy between the two of them has been ended. Love and acceptance and embrace. The relationship was restored, which is exactly what mom wanted for her all along. Friends, Jesus wants the same for you. He knows that the tantrums of our lives come because we've lost sight of his love for us as we start pursuing our own agendas, as we try to be our own rulers. And as he comes to us in love, asking us to lay aside our agendas, lay aside our our rebellious tantrums, lay aside our own claims at self-righteousness, he does so with with one goal in mind, so that we too can experience his embrace, his love, his forgiveness in a restored relationship. And when you see that that's the kind of Jesus, that's the kind of king Jesus is, that's when you'll know that you've met the true king. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a very different type of, of king. Not, not a king who's, who's so small that he can only deal with the enemies outside of us, but one big enough to deal with the enemy within. One big enough to trust, big enough to hold us, and yet loving enough to simply ask us to come to him, to admit that they're wrong, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be embraced, so that we can be loved. 
Father, thank you for this reminder of the love of Jesus, why he is worthy to be our king as we come to this table this morning. Amen.